Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you again for your word, and, and Lord, I do lift up all those who are out sick today, and just pray, Father God, for your healing touch upon them, that you would comfort them while they're away. And then, Lord, we pray for our time in the word this morning, that you would be our teacher, that Lord, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would minister to every single heart that is here. And Lord, that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, Father God. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. Last week in John chapter 6, the last couple weeks in John chapter 6, we saw that our Lord did mighty miracles that drew the attention of men. And we saw that He fed the 5,000 as the crowd was pressing in on Him, even though He was weary and even though He was tired, because though He is 100% God, He was also 100% man while He was here on earth. He grew weary and He grew tired, but as the crowd pressed in on Him, He showed compassion. And that's the God that we serve. He's never too tired for you. He's never too weary for you. He loves you. And so Jesus, was, as they pressed in on him, this crowd was there, and he, he tested his disciples saying, what should we do to feed these guys? And Philip responded saying, you know, even if we had a year's worth of wages, we couldn't possibly feed them. And the Lord turned, and Andrew brought a little boy with his sack lunch. And you've got to love that little boy's faith to come to the Lord with his sack lunch. You know, there's maybe 20,000 people there with women and children, and this little boy gives up his sack lunch. He could have said, no, you know, hey, tough for you guys. I packed a lunch. You guys were dumb. I'm good, right? He didn't do that. Instead, he put it in the Lord's hands. And we know that when you take even the smallest thing and you put it in the Lord's hands, he can do great things. And he fed the, the crowd. But then the crowd wanted to make him king, so they began to press in on our Savior. And so what he did was he put the disciples into a boat and sent them to the other side of the sea. And we know that he did that because he did not want them influenced by the people who wanted to make him king. Because Jesus did not come to earth to be king of the world. He could have done that very easily. He came instead to be the Prince of Peace and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. And so he put the disciples in the boat and began to send them across. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that there are storms of perfection and storms of correction, and these guys were in obedience to the Lord, but then a huge storm swelled up. And we know that as they were out there, it says they paddled all night long and were making no headway. I don't know if you've ever been through something like that in your life, where you're paddling all night long and nothing seems to be happening. And we know what happened there is that the Lord walked to them on the sea, but when they saw Him walking to them, they were afraid. And the reason they were afraid is they were not looking for the Lord in the storm. And so often in our own life, when the storms come up, we need to be looking for Jesus Christ. Because on the very waves that were crashing against the boat was the very way that Christ appeared to them. He showed up on the same waves. And you know, whether it's a wave of, of cancer or a wave of a lost job or a wave of illness in your family or your finances are a mess, we need to be looking for Jesus Christ in the midst of the storm. So then we know that he went to the other side of the sea and the people came unto him. And now he's not going to perform the miracles anymore that they were coming for. Instead, he begins to teach them his word. And we know that their response to his word was not positive. So if you've ever shared your faith before and people have walked away from you, join the club. Amen? Because Jesus himself, when he shared the word with men, the response wasn't good. And they responded in three ways as we saw last week. First, the Jews, the religious leaders, began to murmur against him. Then the, the people began to argue amongst each other. And then finally his own disciples turned and walked away from him. Saying they didn't follow, they said that many of them did not follow him anymore. Because his word was harsh. Now what was the word that he delivered to them? What did he say to them that caused them to walk away? And what caused them to walk away, is, and again it's, it's very true today, that the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. And the question for every one of us in this room is, what are we going to do with Jesus? In John chapter 6, when they heard his words, and these are the words he spoke, he said, unless you drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, you cannot inherit eternal life. You know, they liked following from a distance. They liked going up and just seeing the miracles and having the, you know, the fish sandwich. That was pretty nice, right? They liked the, the fleshly things and the physical things and the worldly things. But when the Lord said to them, you know what? Just following me from a distance or just coming to me for signs is not enough. It's not enough to just know about me. It's not enough if you're coming to me because you want me to rule and reign in Rome and you want to be on my coattails. None of those things is truly what it means to have a relationship with me. Instead, what he told them was, again, drink of my blood and eat of my flesh. What does that mean? Let me tell you what I, what I believe that means. It's not just knowing about Jesus, but tasting of him. It's taking him into my body and into my life. It's giving him the throne and the control. It's denying self, taking up the cross and following him. Being a Christian is not something we do an hour a week. Amen? 
Christianity is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm not a, 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 you know, a dad who happens to be a Christian or a husband who happens to be a Christian or in my case as I am right now, someone who sells advertising who happens to be a Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to do all those things. You cannot separate me or separate you if you know the Lord from the love of God. He's with you 24-7. And he's saying you must take me into your body. You cannot just know me from a distance. You can't just know about me. You can't just come to me seeking the signs and wonders. I must be your life. I must be on the throne of your life. And we know that the response of the people was not positive. What did they do? They turned and they walked away. Look at the last part of verse of chapter 6. I want to read two verses to you before we move on to chapter 7. Beginning in verse 67. And this to me was the key of last week's study. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? The people are leaving in droves. The crowd's walking away from the Lord. They're not going to follow Him anymore. And as they leave, the Lord turns and looks at the twelve apostles who've been walking with Him. The ones that He had walked to on the, on the sea. The ones who had seen Him perform the miracles, but had also heard His words. They may be the only ones that were left. It's not clear from the text. But we know that many, if not all, of the other disciples or His followers had walked away. And He turns around and He looks at the twelve and says, Are you guys going to leave also? And I love Peter's response. Look at verse 68. But Peter said, answered to him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To truly follow Jesus is to come to the point where nothing else matters. Where our life is so wrapped up in him that everything else is secondary. Pastor Dave, you've been pretty radical this morning. Amen. You know what? Christianity ought to be radical. Amen? It ought to be life-changing. It shouldn't just, again, be that religious country club we go to one or two hours a week, but it should be something that just transforms our life, changes our priority, and in comparison to our relationship with God, nothing else matters. And that's what the Lord was saying, and Peter understood. He said, Lord, where else am I going to go? Lord, if I leave you, who else has the words of eternal life? And we believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where else am I going to go? What else am I going to do? There's nothing else in life or in this world that could possibly matter in comparison to our relationship with you. In Him is hope. In Him is love. In Him is life. In Him is everything that we need. You don't realize that the Lord is all you need until He's all you have. Amen? And sometimes we go through difficulties and struggles in life so that the other things will be stripped away so that all we see is Jesus. And the Lord is very clearly telling us. So the people responded and said, you know what? This is too radical. You know, following at a distance is okay. You might be sitting here this morning saying, man, I don't know about this guy, but you know, I, hey, you know, you know, one hour a week's pretty good, I think. You know, I got up this morning and I showed up at church and that should be plenty. And let me encourage you. It's not about working your way to get, win God's approval, but when you're in love with somebody, spending time with Him is a get-to and it's never a have-to. Amen? I, no one has to beat me over the head and tell me to go spend time with my wife or my kids, because I love them, and it's a joy. And it ought to be a joy for us as followers of Jesus Christ to come and spend time in His presence. Amen? It's a get-to, and it shouldn't be a have-to. We were created to have intimate fellowship with the Father, and that can only come through the Son by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That knowing God isn't based on, again, religious rituals of men, but the redeeming work of our Savior upon the cross. These difficult words, again, cause many to walk away and follow Him no more. So as we pick up in chapter 7, we're going to see the response of men continue. And we're we're only going to see about half of the chapter this morning, Lord willing. But we're going to see over the next two weeks that some will disbelieve, even His own brothers. We're going to see that at the very beginning of the chapter. Then we're going to see people debate about Christ. They're going to argue about who they think He really is. Boy, we still see that going on today, don't we? And then finally, we're going to see division over who Jesus is. And that's the same is true today. People divide. And I'll be honest with you. All the other divisions that go on in the world really have no uh, consequence and are of no meaning. You know, people divide over economic status. People divide over political parties. People divide over which football team they like to root for. People divide over what neighborhood they live in or the color of their skin or whatever. And people divide over things that are, are all chaff, and they're meaningless. But there is one thing that the Bible says will be, bring division, and it's where we stand with Jesus Christ. You're either for Him or you're against Him, the Bible says. It's very clear message. Our God is a God of love and grace and mercy. 
but we must make a decision about where we're going to stand with him. So let's begin in verse 1, looking at the disbelief of his own brothers. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. After these things, what does that mean? Now, after these things, it's seven months later. Between chapter 7 and chapter 8, seven months of time go by. Our Lord is ministering to people. And the reason we know that is because it's going to be the Feast of Tabernacles. And when he left previously, it was the Feast of Passover near that time. So about seven months have gone by. As we talked about, the Gospel of John emphasizes the deity of Christ. It doesn't give the the great length of detail that some of the other Gospels do. It just emphasizes the things that point to the fact that Jesus Christ truly is God. And so John, the writer of the Gospel, inspired by the Spirit, moves up seven months And after these things, the crowd at the Feast of Tabernacles is all going up into Jerusalem for the feast. And it says that the Lord desired not to go there. The Lord was not going to go there because he did not want, the Jews wanted to kill him. Now, nobody can touch our Savior's head until it's his time. And we're going to see that in just a few minutes. But the Lord was not a, he was not a God who confronted people often. What he did most often, now we know he went into the temple and he turned the tables over. But most often, he went to those who had a desire to hear from him. Quite often, people came to Jesus. He would stop and he would teach and the crowd would gather. The the woman with the issue of blood sought him out and reached out and said, I can just touch him. Often, people came to the Lord. Our God is a loving and a gracious God. He will force himself on no one. As we come to him, he's receptive. His arms are open wide. But the Jews sought to kill him. And our Lord was going to stay in Judea for the time being. These people that don't believe, it's going to be scary because these people will have walked with the Lord. They will have seen the things that He did. But Jesus stayed in Galilee, not out of the fear of men, but out of the will of the Father. Jesus was not afraid of anything, as we'll see. He's God. He could have spoke the words and smoked everything, but He didn't. And He's a loving and a gracious and a merciful God. And they wanted to kill Him. Now, do you remember why they wanted to kill Him? Chapter 5, what did he do that was so heinous that made the Jews want to kill him? Who remembers? He healed a lame man on the Sabbath. Oh man, kill him. Here's a man who's been ill for 30, an invalid for 38 years. He's been seated by the pool of Bethesda. He's been waiting for that healing touch and the Lord shows up and says, do you want to be made well? And he touches this man and the man's healed. And the Jews are in an uproar because he healed on the Sabbath. Because he broke the man-made rules. It's not because of, in, of the religious truth, but because of man-made rules that they thought that he had broken. They wanted to kill him. Verse 2. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Now the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the most important events on the Jewish calendar. It followed the Feast of Trumpets and the Solemn Day of Atonement. It was a festive time. And all of the males, aged 20 and older, were to come to Jerusalem for this feast. And as people came, they, they, it was a celebration that looked back on their time when they wandered in the wilderness. Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday night, we've been watching the Jews as they're wandering in the wilderness. We're going to continue to see this for a couple more books. But as they're wandering in the wilderness, they look back and remember God's provision. How did God provide when they're wandering in the wilderness? Who remembers? What did they eat? Manna. What did they drink? Water that came from the rock. Right? You remember that? And so part of the ritual at the Feast of Tabernacles was that they walked around carrying these big lamp sti- lamp, uh, golden lampstands, lamps, candlesticks, right? And they carried them around to remember that Jesus was the light of the world. And that He had gone, be- or not Jesus is the light of the world, but God is the light of the world, that He had provided for them, and that He had gone before them in that pillar of fire. But then they would also go, and every day they would get, go get water from the Pool of Siloam, and they would bring it in, and they would pour it out in the tabernacle. And they would pour it out in the temple, and they would pour it out onto the floor, and it was in remembrance of the fact that God had provided for them when they were wandering in the wilderness. But the Feast of Tabernacles not only looked back to the wandering in the wilderness, but it looked forward to the coming Messiah. As they were waiting for the one who would come and be that water, that living water that would transform lives. And they were looking for one, in their mind though, that would rule and reign and overthrow Rome. So this feast was huge. It happened at harvest time, so people were at that point pretty, pretty flush. They were taken care of, they were wealthy. And they would come in and have this huge feast. And the people came up to observe a religious uh, remembrance 
And sadly, though, they're going to miss the Messiah that it all points to. It's a reminder of the provision that they got from the rock. Now, verse 3. His brothers, therefore, said to him... Now, Jesus had brothers. And these are his physical brothers. You know, there's, a, there's people out there that teach that Mary was a virgin all of her life, and she was not true. Read the Bible. What does it say? Jesus had brothers. Same mom, different dad. Amen? God the Father was his dad, right? But... Joseph was the father of the rest of the sons. Mary was a a woman blessed among women, the Bible says. But we do not worship Mary. Amen? Mary did not die on the cross for you. Mary did not pay the price for your sins. And Mary was a sinner in need of a Savior, just like every one of us. Amen? And so when we worship something other than Christ, what we're doing is we're saying that His work on the cross is not the answer that we can get there some other way. And we need to very clearly understand that this tradition of men that's taught about Mary contradicts the Bible. And it says here that Jesus had brothers. Now, can you imagine growing up with Jesus, what that must have been like? You know, talk about having a perfect older brother, right? I mean, Jesus never did anything wrong. He's God, right? I mean, He was perfect. He was loving. He was gracious. Can you imagine Mary saying, why can't you be more like your big brother, right? Which actually would be impossible because He's the Son of the living God and you're not. He's born without a sin nature, but you were. But there they saw the Lord and sadly, in seeing Him grow up and seeing His attributes, they still did not believe in Him. And they did not follow Him. And look what they said to the Lord. It says, depart from here and go into Judea, that the disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then it says in verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. They were skeptical about him. They challenged him when they should have been worshiping him. They said, we dare you to go up to Judea. They knew the Jews were seeking to kill him. They knew the stories about their brother. They said, we dare you to go up there. Go up there and show yourself to the world. If you're really who you say you are, we dare you to go. Now here's the good news. Jesus' brothers don't believe now, but we know that they do come to know Him. And you know when they come to know Him? After His resurrection. And you know what this tells me? It tells me that just seeing the good works of men is not enough. Even seeing the good works of God is not enough. It's the cross that makes us see that we are sinners in need of our Savior. Even though they had grown up with Jesus, they did not follow Him, they did not believe in Him. But after He rose from the dead, after His death upon the cross, they finally understood and followed the Lord. I've had people say, we just need to live good lives and we'll be an example for Christ. Well, there's some truth to that. But living good lives is not enough. Because if living a good life was enough, then the Mormons would be a great testimony for Christ. But they don't believe in Jesus, in the Jesus of the Bible. You know, the the people that do good works and good things would be a great testimony. The reality is that our good works should glorify our Father in heaven, and we must tell people that the answer is Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. Amen? Those good works should let people know, my life's been transformed, but it's because of Jesus. And so they did not believe in him, and they dared him, and they taunted him. Go up there. You know, if you're really who you say, just go up there, we dare you. James and Jude were two of his brothers, and they wrote two of the books of the Bible. So we do know how their lives were transformed later, and they became men who followed after Almighty God. You know what else that tells me? It tells me that we can't trust in who we know, in a sense, from the world's perspective. You know, a lot of, I hear people all the time, I'll talk to them about the Lord, or they'll find out I'm a pastor, and they'll say, oh, my great-great-uncle was a missionary in Africa. That's wonderful. You know, my son's a priest, my whatever. That, that's great, but guess what? That's not going to score you any brownie points with God. Amen? I mean, can you imagine James and Jude? Hey, you know, Jesus, kind of my brother, right? But that wasn't enough. They still needed to repent of their sin. They still needed to be born again. They still needed to have that intimate relationship with the Father that can come only through the Son by the drawing of the Spirit. Amen? And so, because you go to church, or because you've got religious relatives, or because you, know, you, you, know, you, you pulled a, ba- a baby from a burning building, or whatever you're trusting in, whatever other thing that you've done, whatever good work or relationship you have on earth, it's not good enough. 
You must have a relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You must drink of his blood and eat of his flesh. He must become not just someone you know about, but he must become a part of your life. Amen? That's what it means to be a Christian. So they spoke this, no doubt, with sarcasm and with jealousy, and the crowds did not believe. It's interesting that in one of the Psalms, in Psalm 69.8, it said that this of the Messiah, I am a stranger to my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Who's that talking about? It's Jesus. And notice he says, unto not my brothers, but he says, to my mother's children. They weren't his father's children, right? Amen? They had the same mom, different dad. But all the way back in Psalm 69, speaking of the Messiah, it says that he's a stranger among his brethren, and he's even an alien to his own brothers, his own mother's children. Verse 6. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. You know what? Jesus' life was ordered from the very first second. Everything that Jesus did was foreordained from the, by the Father from the very first second. From the creation of the universe, His life was foreordained by the Father. And Jesus did one thing. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He had one passion, He had one heart, He had one desire, and that was to do the will of the Father. We want to know what the Father's like, we look at Jesus Christ. And here's the reality, you guys. If the world wants to know what Jesus looks like, they ought to be able to look at us. Why? Because the Spirit of the living God lives inside of us. Amen? Not that we're perfect because we never will be apart from Him, but we should be examples to the world of Christ. And the Lord had one desire, and that was to do the will of the Father. And He said, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. And you know why your time is always ready? Because you act according to your own will. You don't seek the will of the Father. You just go and do what you want, whenever you want, however you want, because it's all about you. You know what, guys? Can I encourage you with something? We've all done it. I've done it more times than I can count. We, don't need, we should be asking God for His permission, not His blessing, after we've already done something. Amen? We run out and we do it, and, oh, Lord, could you help me out here with this? Because we need to seek Him before we go. Amen? We need to seek His face, seek His will, know that we've heard from God. And when you know that you've heard from God, then it's all in His hands anyway. Amen? We came over, when we came over to start Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz, we came over here with a handful of people, but I know that I know that I know that I heard from the Lord. And those of you here in the beginning, it was tough. You know, we're meeting at the Bets Hall downtown, and you know, they got yoga classes over here, and they got the chanting to the moon god over here, and they got I mean, it was just bizarre that we'd show up, we wouldn't have a room. I mean, it would just be faced. But you know what? When you know that you know that you know that God has gone before you and He's the one who's called you, then it's in His hands and you have nothing to worry about. Amen? But if you go and do things out of His will, the first times you have a problem, you got two problems. Lord, help me out. Maybe I wasn't supposed to be here. Right? You ever, have you ever experienced that before? You go out and do things in your flesh. And so we see here that the Lord says, you know, your will is what, whatever. You guys can go whenever you want. You don't have any time because you don't seek the Lord. Does God care about whether or not you take that promotion at work? Yes. Does He care about where you live? Yes. Does He care about what school your kids go to? Yes. Does He care about what church you attend? Absolutely. You know what? We should be seeking the Lord about those things because He's numbered the hairs on our head. And for you guys, it's more than me, but he's numbered the hairs on your head, and he's numbered them because he loves you so very much. And so he cares about every aspect of your life. And God's sovereign timetable was what guided and directed him, but they did not walk in the will of the Father. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. The world cannot hate the Lord's brothers because they belong to the world and the world loves its own. Friendship with the world is the enemy of God, the Bible says. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And if you're a friend of God, you're an enemy of the world. You know what? As Christians, I think we sometimes try to have our feet in both camps, right? I call it the spiritual splits, and it hurts when you get out too far, right? You know, I want to I be with the world and be like the world and be popular with the world, but I want to serve God at the same time. But the Bible says you're either friends of the world or you're a friend of God. And if you're a friend of God, the things you do are not going to make sense to the world. What do you... You're going to quit your job making how much money and do what for how, What? You're going to sell your house and... You're going to do what? From the world's perspective, it makes no sense. You're going to church on Super Bowl Sunday? What's wrong with you, right? 
I mean, when you love the Lord, the world, you're an enemy of the world. And you know what? When you love the Lord, the things that you do make no sense to the world. And so the Lord said, you know what? The world will not kill you because the world doesn't hate you because you're a friend of the world. And as Christians, there must be some persecution that will come. When you stand on a rooftop and talk about, and you share the love of God, and you're glowing in the dark for the Lord, there's going to be some people that that halogen light shines on that aren't going to like it. And they're going to treat you the same way they treated the Lord. They're going to argue, they're going to dispute, and they're going to walk away just like they did to our Savior. But we must always do it in love, never with a self-righteous attitude. We're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. Amen? We were beggars. We were desperate need of Him. Without Him, we can do nothing. And He says, you know what? You guys don't have a problem with the world because you're of the world. The world loves you because you're just like them. But if you're not like the world, the Bible tells us very clearly that the world will hate us. Do you know that Jesus' message was not politically correct? Do you know He didn't get up and water down the gospel so as not to offend? He loved people supernaturally, but He told them, The same message that John the Baptist said, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We must repent. We must turn away from that person we once were. We must come to know Jesus Christ in a personal and intimate way. We must drink of his blood and eat of his flesh. It must be more than knowing about him, but having that personal, intimate relationship with Almighty God. And when you have that, nothing else matters. Instead of revealing their sin, they caused them to repent. They resented their sin, being exposed. They didn't like it. When Jesus came around, most people, they murmured, they argued, they walked away, and again, they did not want to respond because of who He was. Verse 8 and 9. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast, for my time has not fully come. And when He said these things to them, He remained in Galilee. So these, Jesus stays in Galilee. He's the Son of the living God, and these guys are going up to celebrate a religious feast. Doesn't it blow your mind? Do you know that they wanted to hurry up and crucify Jesus so they could celebrate Passover? Did you know that? we got to hurry up and get him on that cross and kill him so we can go celebrate Passover. We've got to kill the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who Passover points to, so we can go have our religious feast. People miss the Messiah seeking after religion all the time. We've talked about the fact that religion, the word religion, relingara, which means to relink. In that case, relinking sinful man back to holy God, I love that word. But what that word has come to mean in the world, I don't like it much. When people say to me, well, I don't like religion. I, I'm, not, I'm not very religious. Me either. Well, you're a pastor. What do you mean you're not into I'm, Religion to me, it's a bunch of rules from men trying to somehow win the approval of God. But it's about a relationship with the Lord. Amen? That's what it's about. You know what? This gymnasium is probably not religious enough for most people. Amen? It's not, it's not all that fancy, but here's the good news. Where we gather is where the Lord is. Amen? And we are the temple of His Holy Spirit, and I like this gymnasium. Because you know what I love about it is? God's people are here, the Lord is here. And it's a great thing. But these people, they, they didn't heed the, the words of God. They didn't seek after the Lord. Instead, they went up to celebrate. They, they missed out on the relationship because of their pursuit of religion. And there's too many people today that are pursuing religion and they're going to miss the Savior. They're pursuing, you know, an ism. They're pursuing good works. They're pursuing, you know, belonging to something instead of having a relationship with Almighty God. And sadly, there are thousands who do that in vain. And I want to say this. Many other things can become religious rituals if it doesn't begin with a relationship with Christ. If you pray and you don't know Jesus, it's nothing but a vain ritual. If you sing songs and you don't know Jesus, it's yelling down a well because He cannot have you in the presence of the Father apart from the shed blood of the Son. If we take communion, if we give to others, but we don't don't do it from a relationship with the Lord that begins in our hearts, it's all in vain and is of no value. It becomes nothing more than a ritual. And may we not be people who have a ritualistic relationship with God. But may we be people who have an intimate, personal relationship with Him. Is Jesus Christ your best friend? Are you in love with Him? Have you become a part of His bride? Man, that's where, that's where it's at. Amen? And I'll tell you what, when, you get, when, when we walk there, there's a joy that the world doesn't even understand. 
And praise God that through His Word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, it transforms our lives. Verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Jesus went to the temple not to fulfill the wishes of his brothers, but to fulfill the will of the Father. His brothers said, I dare you to go. And he said it was not yet time for him to come. So he waits until the middle of the feast, three and a half days in, and he goes up into the temple, and there he's going to teach them the word of God. Again, he didn't do it to fulfill the will of man, but to fulfill the will of the Father. Now we move on to this debate among people as Jesus begins to teach them. Verse 11, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? Why did these Jews seek him? Who remembers? What do they want to do? They want to kill him. Where is he? Where's this Jesus? Where is he? We need to find him. That's not the kind of seeking the Lord that the Bible talks about. Amen? We need to come to him saying, where is he? Lord, I'm broken. My heart. I, Lord, I've tried it. You know, I need you. I'm desperate for you. We need to be that, the leper or the, the one with the issue of blood that just says, if I could just touch his garment, if I could just draw near to him, that's seeking the Lord. Verse 12. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. As the Jews despised, the people debated. His miracles had created a stir. Some called him good, others called him a deceiver. But the fear of men extinguished the faith in God, their faith in God. You know what? How many of you, and my hand's up, how many of you find it hard to share your faith with other people? Raise your hand. Okay? You know why? Because of our fear of men. We're afraid of what they'll think. We're afraid of what they might say. They're afraid of what they'll think about us. We're worried about how we come off. We're afraid they might ask us a question we don't have an answer to. we got all these reasons why we don't want to share our faith. And it's all because, mainly more than anything else, a fear of man. We're afraid of what men will think. And fear of man will extinguish our faith. When we're afraid of what men think, then we will not be bold for the kingdom of God. But when we're so in love with the Lord and our eyes and our hearts and our minds are focused on Him and all we can do is just love Him supernaturally, when He tells us, we say, yes, Lord. Most of you know, every morning I wake up, yes, Lord, first two words out of my mouth. I want to begin to spend and end my day with the Lord. And we should start off by saying, Lord, I want to walk in the center of Your will and I won't fear men. I won't be afraid of what the world has to say. I'll just come and follow and serve You. You know, the Bible says, confess me before men and I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. Deny me before men and I will deny you before my Father in heaven. I mentioned before, pray for my boss at work. He's a great guy from the world's perspective. His name's John. But you know what? One of the things he said to me is, I believe that virtually all people know Christ. They just don't want to be real outspoken about it. But the Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. He thinks, well, yeah, people might even curse him and, and blaspheme him and say bad things about him, but deep down inside, they know that one day they're going to stay. So they really believe in him down in here somewhere. You know what? By your fruit, they shall know you, the Bible says. If you're in love with the Lord, it's going to transform the way that you live your life. And these people were complaining and they were murmuring and they didn't want to say anything about Jesus openly because of their fear of the Jews. They didn't want to be lumped in with Jesus. And you know what? As Christians... If we're following the Lord, we're going to be lumped in with Jesus. But I'll tell you what, there's no place I'd rather be. Amen? Lump me in with Him all day. It's okay. I've had people say, what are you, some kind of Jesus freak? And at first I used to think, oh, you know. Now I go, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Jesus freak, that's good. I mean, if that's what the title you want to put by my name, that's okay. I mean, if you're going to associate me with something, associate me with Him. As Christians, man, it should be our desire to be acquainted with, associated with Jesus Christ, above all else. If the people at your work were asked to write down five words, or people in your neighborhood, or people in your family, five words that describe you, would the lover of Christ be anywhere in there? Would they say anything about Jesus? Or would it say golf, you know, football, sports? Uh, sale, you know, uh, shopping, uh, you know what I mean? Would they give this big long list, but would Jesus be in there somewhere? Fear of men will keep us from standing up for him. Now watch as Jesus teaches in the temple. We're going to close with this. Now the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And man, I'd love to be at that Bible study. Amen? Can you imagine being the, They're in the temple and they're in there observing their rituals pointing back to when the Jesus 
the, the rock that points to Jesus Christ, water was pouring forth from the rock. They're looking back to their deliverance in the wilderness, and they're observing their religious rituals. And in the midst of it, Jesus comes walking into the temple and begins to teach. Man, I like it. Now, Jesus had been to the temple in Jerusalem one other time. Who remembers what happened when he came the first time? What did he do? Turned over the table, made a whip of cords, and drove the people out of there. And I find it interesting that before he taught, he cleansed the temple. And before he can teach you and I through his word must first be cleansed. Amen? We must be cleansed of our sin before we will understand His Word. Before you come to know Christ, you read the Bible and you don't fully get it. You can't. Because the illumination comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit must live inside of us. And the Lord went in. The first thing He did was He cleansed the temple. And now sometimes later, He comes back and He teaches in the very same place. He opens up His mouth and He begins to teach them the Word. He enters. This huge crowd was there as they gathered for this great and awesome feast. Verse 15. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Man, is that like the world today. You know what? If you don't have a big PhD and 87 other letters after your name, what kind of authority do you have? You know, it's been said that Jesus taught with authority and the Jews taught from authorities. They responded and quoted what men had to say and responded to what men had to say. And Jesus got up and taught with the most incredible authority. They had never heard it before. And you know why? Because Jesus didn't just know the Word, but He is the Word. Amen? And when He taught, He taught with power and authority. But men marvel more at, you know, education. If you got the proper education, then you have the ability to speak. You quote the famous you know, rabbis. You know what? This reminds me of a story in Acts chapter 4. The same word marveled is used there. It says in verse four, chapter 4, verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and realized that they had been with Jesus. You know what? God wants us to have marvelous faith. Amen? They marveled at the authority that they taught with because they hadn't gone to seminary. There were 30 you know, rabbinical training schools or seminaries in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus, and he never took one class. Never. Now, does that mean that we as Christians should never go to Bible college? I, I encourage you, go to Bible college. That's a great thing. But you know where authority comes from? It doesn't come from how educated I've been, but it comes to, from who I've been hanging out with. Amen? They marveled and were blown away at the words that came out of these guys' mouth. But what did they say at the end of that verse? Because they had been with Jesus. We can study all we want, but the power comes from hanging out with Jesus. Amen? You spend time daily in the Word, in devotional study. You spend time seeking after God, and you'll be amazed at how God will use you. How God's Word will flow through you. How God will use, will impact the world around you. On a real quick personal note, I'll never forget, several years ago, I was in Southern California, and my pastor down there told me it was time for me to go start a church. And so we sent these letters out and tapes. He actually did it. Sent, kind of, you know, Dave, time to go. And so he sent these letters out and these tapes out to all these churches, and somehow it got to this one church in Texas, and they called me up as a church of four or 500 people and said, we've been listening to your tapes, and we got in a group and listened to the tapes, and you know what? We know that we've heard from God that you're supposed to be our pastor. We want to send you plane tickets. How can you come? When can you come out here and teach our people? We've already found a house for you to live in. I mean, they were just going mock to her. We've been listening. We've heard from the Lord. Can you fax us over or something? We, so I said, well, I'll, I'll respond. I'll certainly go out there and talk to them. So I filled out this thing they, they wanted me to send them, and I sent it out to them. And they got it. I got a call back the next day. They said, Pastor, we're just excited. We, Wednesday night, we put the tape in. The whole church just listened to your tape. We just put the tape in and we listen to you teach on the tape. And the church, we're just excited that we just feel like it's the Lord and He's going to bring you where we know God's going to do great things. We've been praying for six months. You're an answer to our prayer. Oh, but one thing, when you sent out your, your form, you forgot to write down on there where you went to seminary. I said, well, I, I didn't forget. I didn't go. You, you, didn't, you didn't go. Uh, no, I didn't go. How do you know the Bible? So, uh, studying it. Being in the Word every day, growing up in a Christian home, anointing called by God, I don't know. Oh, we'll have to get back to you. Four or five days later, I get a letter in the mail telling me that they're going to move on and look somewhere else. 
from the will of God that we're excited about it. The whole church is, you didn't go to seminary? You don't have letters after your name? Oh, never mind. Now, it was God's grace because God knew he wanted me in Santa Cruz. Amen? And God's grace, and his, but it just showed me and it taught me that people respect education. We need to be looking for the anointing of God, not the education of men. Amen? And so they looked at the Lord and said, he never studied. How in the world does he know all this? Well, good question. Might want to ask him. Might want to spend some time in his presence to find out exactly who he is. And Jesus said to them, verse 16, My doctrine is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. Jesus, 100% God, reflected the Father completely. And God reveals truth and imparts wisdom to those who seek to do His will. When you seek to do the will of God, He's going to reveal greater things to you. But the religious leaders sought to do their own will, and they walked in ignorance. They were seeking their own will, their own pattern, their own path, and they walked around having no clue. The Son of the living God standing right in front of them. These are the guys that are transcribing the Old Testament. Jesus gets up and teaches them from the Old Testament with authority, And instead of receiving him, they reject him because it rains on their parade. Well, man, you know, but if you're the guy, then I don't get to be the guy. Right? If you're the son of the living God, then people are going to come to you and say, we've got to kill him. You know, the same thing happens to us. You know, well, Lord, if I put you on the throne of my life, then I can't be on the throne of my life anymore. Amen. That's it. Well, wait a minute. Somebody's got to die. Amen? And, you know, the Bible says, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. i got to die to my will? Yes. It's not about me anymore? No. Oh, this is a hard word. They don't follow him anymore. They didn't receive. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. They missed the Savior. Verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who has sent him is true, and no righteousness is in him. You know what? While other saviors and messiahs acted from their own selfish interests, Jesus, the Son of God, came solely to do one thing, to glorify his Father. We can discover a teacher's true motives by where he places the glory. When someone gets up and teaches you something, who is he trying to glorify? If it's all pointing to himself, run away quickly. If you turn on a station and it says the Worldwide Ministry and it's got some guy's name after it, change the channel. Amen? You know, touch not the glory. Who alone should be glorified? Him. Who alone should be worthy, is worthy to be honored and praised and lifted up? Him. Without Him, we can do nothing. Pastor Dave is not the head of Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. Jesus Christ is. Amen? I'm just called to serve you guys, but He is the head of the church. It's Him alone that we follow. And if you follow men, you're going to be disappointed. You come hang out at my house with me for a while, you're going to be bummed out because Pastor Dave blows it, right? Ask my wife, right? But if you're seeking after God, he will never fail you. Never. That's who we follow. That's who we serve. Whose glory do you seek? In your own life, we're almost done. Whose glory do you seek? When you get up in the morning, whose glory are you thinking about? You're thinking about, I'm looking pretty sweet. Good hair day, right? Nice new shirt, right? I'm going to be dazzling today at work, right? I mean, do we, want, do we go seeking that people will honor us and look at us? Or do we go saying, you know what, Lord? Give me a chance to point people to you today. Give me a chance, Lord. To, and I'm not saying that we should just be all nappy and dirty, and, right? And I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, though, is we should seek to bring glory to God and not into ourselves. That we should be a reflection of Him pointing people to the Lord. Verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? They're seeking to kill Jesus because he had healed a lame man on the Sabbath. And he said, you hypocrites. You want to kill me because of a man-made rule, but you don't even keep the law of Moses that was given to you. You guys are sinners in need of a Savior. Hypocrites. Mask wearers. Pretenders. A lot of pretenders in the church today. And he said, they were seeking to kill him, contrary to man-made religious tradition, and yet they were lawbreakers themselves. Unless a man acknowledges his sin, he'll see no need for a Savior. When I witness to people, the first thing I want to do is get them to admit that they're sinners. If they don't admit they're a sinner, we've got to start right there, right? Uh, you're not a sinner, really. Okay, well, let's talk about that for a minute, right? And, and get people to realize, I'm a sinner, because without conviction, there can be no conversion. Without a realization of sin, there can be no salvation. But there's a lot of books out there that tell pastors like me, don't talk about sin at your church, because people will get offended. 
If you talk about sin, they're going to go, that guy called me a sinner. I'm never going back there again. That's it, right? I mean, they tell you don't do that because people, well, you know what? We need to be offended because we are sinners. Amen? And the Bible says that the cross of Christ is the stone of offense. Now, if you're offended by Dave, that's no good. But if you're offended by the word, you need to be offended. Amen? And so we see here that Jesus says to them, you guys are hypocrites. You don't even keep the law. And the people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is it that seeks to kill you? So not only do they deny Jesus Christ, they say he's from the devil. I think you're off just a little bit, right? I mean, you're from the devil. Why? Because I don't want to hear that harsh word because it offends me. You're telling me that I'm bad and I'm in desperate need of a Savior, and that's the truth. Verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I do one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man well on the Sabbath? Circumcision was something they did on the eighth day with every male child, and it was a mark, going back to Genesis 17, of a covenant between God and Israel. And so when they made that mark, if the eighth day happened to be on the Sabbath, then they would circumcise a child on the Sabbath. And he says, you guys will circumcise, you'll bring harm on the Sabbath, but you're saying I can't touch a man who's been uh, lame for 38 years on the Sabbath. And isn't that a lot like religion today? Cries of anguish, but no cries of joy. Religion says you better not be happy. Are you happy? Oh, you better stop that. Right? You're at church on Sunday, you're too happy. You shouldn't be smiling. You should be, ooh. Right? I mean, and, and people think, you know, churches, and, and religion is, you know, you wear a black robe, you got a wheelbarrow full of rules, right? And you walk around, oh, right? And you take a board and, like, hit yourself in the face every three steps, you know, oh, right? Oh, that's religion. Oh, yeah, but I get to go to heaven when this is over. That's not religion. That's not a relationship with God. It's not this, this drudgery and this pain. And that's how the Jews were. They had turned it into this torment. And, you know, you can't be happy. We can have anguish on the Sabbath, but no joy. What are you leaping for? Sit down. Right? I mean, it said, you know, don't be happy. You know, we should be joyous and happy. Amen? The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy. As Christians, we, have, you know, we shouldn't be walking around like we've been chewing on a bag of lemons. Amen? Oh, yeah, going to heaven. That's right. right? Now, that's not Christianity. We should be loving and serving and honoring God and excited about it. If you're truly spiritual, you should be miserable. You've got to sleep on a hard bed, bed of nails. You get one piece of bread once a month. You can't talk to anybody, right? If you're a monk, that's kind of how it is. Oh, sit on the bed, I oh, can't eat anything. Why, why not? Because I'm serving God. Oh, right? That's not it. God loves you guys. Is that what you want for your children? If you really love me, you'll sleep on a bed of nails. And you get one piece of bread once a month. If you're really my son, then that's what you'll do. Is that what you do to your kids? If that's what you do to your kids, we need to talk after church, okay? But if, if you love your kids, what do you do? You just pour out love on them, right? You want to minister to them. You want to see them just having joy. You sacrifice for them, and that's what our Savior did for us, amen? And we should be walking in the fullness of His joy. God's Word brings law and conviction, but it also brings grace and restoration. That it delivers us from from the guilt of sin. We don't have to walk around heavily burdened anymore. Verse 24, last verse. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. While man tends to judge by looking at things from a physical point of view, Jesus demanded righteousness from a spiritual point point of view. Jesus is the standard for holiness, not the rules of men. Righteous judgment both reveals man's sin and his need for salvation. What does the Bible do? It tells us we're sinners, but it tells us how to have restoration. It tells us that we're wicked and hopeless and desperate, but it tells us how we can be restored to Almighty God. It's, it's really a, a book of good news and bad news. Amen? It's got the, the news that you're a sinner, but the good news is He sent His Savior. Amen? And so I want to just close. The worship team will come up. I want to ask you a question. If you're walking around living religious life filled with a burden, remember that Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen? When you walk with the Lord, it's not drudgery. It's a get-to. It's not a have-to. And then I want to ask you another question. What have you done with Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he your best friend? Is he somebody that your relationship with him is intimate and personal? Or is it something you do once in a while because, well, I do bad things and somehow I've got to score some brownie points with God? Uh, my prayer is that at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz, that it would be about an intimate relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? It wouldn't just be us doing things to try to make God happy. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. And we thank you that you suffered and died that we might have eternal life. And Lord, I pray for anybody here that's overwhelmed by the burden of their sin, that Father God, by the power of your spirit, you would open their eyes to see that all they need to do is confess you as Savior and they'll be born again. Lord, I also pray for those who may know you, but Lord, their walk with you has been dry or their walk with you has been secondary. Lord, I pray that they would seek first the kingdom of God and make you first in their lives. Real quickly, with every head bowed, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, the Bible says very simply, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. It's not a bunch of rules. It's just saying I need him as my Savior. If you're here, I'll pray a simple prayer with you. You can walk out of here today knowing that you've been born again. Is there even one person here? Just raise your hand. I'll pray with you. God bless you. Anybody else? To know that you know that you know that you've been born again. Anybody else? Then I want to ask one more question. If you're here today and you, you know you're a Christian, but you've not really been making him first in your life, and you just want to say today, Lord, I want to put you first again. Lord, I'm willing to drink of your blood and eat of your flesh. I'm willing to put you on the throne of my life. I want to make you more important than my job, more important than anything else that I have. If you're here this morning and that's your heart, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. God bless you. God bless all of you with your hands raised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for for those who raise their hand to accept you as Savior, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit that they would just confess in their heart right now their need for you as Savior. And everybody, just pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me for my sin. I thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price. Fill me with your Spirit. And help me to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. And Lord, I pray for the rest here, Lord, that raise their hand for that, just that revival in their lives, Lord, to put you first. Help us, Lord, to be a body of believers who loves you above all else, Lord, that you would be first and foremost in our lives, to seek first the kingdom of God. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. You're such a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, stand up and let's close the worship song.